Welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, as we continue our partnership with the Whitechapel Society 1888 in releasing the guest speaker talks from their bi-monthly meetings, conferences and special events. What you are about to hear in the order of their appearance are the talks from the Whitechapel Society's Victims Conference, which took place on the 8th of September 2018 at Hanbury Hall, Hanbury Street, in London's East End. So without further ado, let's turn it over to the events MC, Philip Hutchinson, as he introduces the final speaker, Hallie Rubenhold, with a talk entitled, The Lives of the Canonical Five. Ladies and gentlemen, our last speaker today, Hallie Rubenhold is an author, social historian, broadcaster and historical consultant for TV and film. Halley received a BA in History from the University of Massachusetts Amherst and an MA in British History and History of Art from the University of Leeds. Remaining at Leeds, she embarked on her studies for a PhD and later completed her thesis on the subject of marriage and child rearing in the 18th century. As I say, I already feel stupid. In 2005, she published The Covent Garden Ladies, which brought uh, to public attention the true story of the Harris List. Since its publication, her history of this notorious guidebook to George and London's prostitutes, along with her edited compendium of the same, has succeeded in capturing the public's imagination. Halley's work's been the subject of several art exhibitions and television programmes, including the drama series Harlots. In 2006, she presented the Harlots Handbook for BBC4, a documentary based on her work on the Harris's List of Covent Garden Ladies. Her equally celebrated second book, Lady Worsley's Whim, about the 18th century's most infamous adultery trial, became BBC Radio 4's Book of the Week in November 2008. In August 2015, it appeared as a 90-minute drama for BBC Two entitled The Scandalous Lady W, starring Natalie Dormer and Sean Evans. Not, not both as Lady Worsley, you understand, because uh, Sean Evans played that role alone. Halley is also the author of a series of novels set during the period of the French Revolution. The first of these, Mistress of My Fate, was published in 2011. The second, The French Lesson, was published in the UK in April 2016. There have been laudable publications by Neil Sheldon, John Bennett and Paul Begg about the lives of the women who died during the Whitechapel murders, but Halley has, of course, recently compiled the first ever full-length history of the five victims of Jack the Ripper, in which the Ripper actually plays no part. The five has been optioned for a drama series by Main Street Pictures. In addition to writing books, articles and reviews, Hallie regularly appears on TV as a contributor to documentaries. She also acts as a historical consultant for period dramas, most notably the award-winning Channel 4 series City of Vice, the BBC One series Jonathan Strange and Mr Norrell, and on the adaptation of The Scandalous Lady W. She's currently developing a drama series with wall-to-wall television about indentured servants in pre-revolutionary America. Hallie has a passion for telling a great historical tale with a nose for unearthing previously unknown stories from little-known sources. She loves challenging preconceived notions about, her, about our ancestors and revels in history surprising unpleasant and gritty truths. Her academic experience extends to research, teaching, lecturing and cu- curatorial work. In the past, she's been employed as the curator for the National Portrait Gallery, a university lecturer and a commercial art dealer. In 2014, she curated an exhibition on women's reputations in the Georgian era for number one Royal Crescent in Bath and has been involved with several projects at the Founding Museum in London. Finally, as if it weren't enough, she's also created lines of jewellery, notepads and fridge magnets. That is not a joke, by the way. She lives with her husband in London. He probably does something as well. Uh, Our final speaker today, it's time to hear from Hallie Rubenow.
that's rather humbling. Um, <laughs> thank you. Um, yeah, I, I, I could have just introduced myself, but that was much better. Um, <laughs> um, before we carry on, um, one of the things I wanted to say was it was brought to my attention fairly recently, and this is, I felt quite appropriate to mention today, that um, a woman who had started some very important research and had given a paper about the five victims several years ago recently passed away, and her name is Catherine Armin. And I wanted, I, I never met Catherine, but I read the speech that she gave, and I think it's fantastic, and I hope that I can continue her work. And I wanted to say that I wanted to dedicate my lecture today to Catherine Ammon and the work that she has undertaken. Um, and I know by many people she will be very much missed, and I regret that I never had the chance to meet her. So. Please remember Catherine today. And Jack the Ripper, Annie Chapman, 130 years ago today on this very street. Um, very appropriate that we should be meeting here. We tend to usually talk about the Ripper in terms of who he was, figuring out who he was, what he did, what was his modus operandi, all of these various things. And often an interest in the women themselves falls by the wayside. Um, as, as was mentioned in my introduction, I, I, am, I am literally putting the finishing touches on a book right now, which is uh, the first full-length biography about the five women. And um, today I want to share some of my research with you. Obviously, I, I know that these women don't need much of an introduction to um, uh, this particular group who will be fairly familiar with who they are. I know there will be Ripper veterans and rookies among you. There will be some for whom all of this information, you have, you know, you're, you're fairly well conversant in, um, if not very conversant in, um, and others for whom this will be entirely new. And because of that, I wanted to include uh, a lot of, well, certain pieces of the research that I found that is entirely new, which I have integrated into the stories that I'm going to tell you. For those of you who, for whom this is fairly new material, um, the five canonical victims are the women I will be talking about, and they are uh, Marianne or Polly Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Jane Kelly, who were murdered between the 31st of August and the 9th of November, 1888. Um, I'm going to be galloping through quite a lot of this material, and we will probably, we'll almost certainly run over the one-hour allocated spot, but I wanted to make sure I could cover as much as I could. I will, as I said, I will be galloping through this, so I'm going to be skimming over lots of stuff and leaving stuff out, and there might be some of you who are very familiar with the stories going, oh, but, uh, but didn't she, uh, but, yes, she probably did, um, but, but I'm not talking about that because I want to just get a general feeling and to put in some of the new things that I've found as well. Um, given the time constraints that we have. Um, and there will be new stuff in the book as well, so I, I hope you will get a chance to read that if you are genuinely interested. Just a couple of general facts to start out with. I mean, it's interesting, when I started my work on the Ripper, even I was 
really, really surprised by how little I actually knew about the victims. I, you know, write about prostitution, and I thought these five women are perhaps, and I say in quotes, the five best-known prostitutes. And yet, when I did my research, I found that there was so much more than this that it was really quite striking, and it was striking that there wasn't a huge corpus of material out there that had been written. And so, for me, even the things that I learned, the basic things, were really surprising. So, for example, that not all five of them were prostitutes, and that is something I, I will come back to if I have time at the end. I don't want to harp on about that because it's a rather contentious part of the thesis that I'm putting forward. Um, but it's important to remember that you know, they were poor women, um, and they didn't belong to brothels. None of them belonged to brothels. Um, certainly, there is zero evidence of that. Um, and um, all of the women were also in their 40s, with the exception of Mary Jane Kelly, who was about 25. And that surprised me, too, when I learned about that, because I had always imagined they were young women. Bearing in mind that the average life expectancy at the time for a poor working-class woman in London was 44 they had lived pretty much the average length of, of life. Um, two of them were, oh, I get some more water, thank you. Um, <laughs> two of them, by the time when they were killed, were already very ill. One had tuberculosis, Annie Chapman. Um, it certainly seemed as if she had tuberculosis. And another one had Bright's disease, or kidney disease, and that was Catherine Eddowes. Um, four, if not all five of them, had born children, and all but one, or possibly all, had been married. Um, and none of them were originally from the East End, which was the one fact that I found particularly striking about all of this. Um, they ended up there when their luck ran out, and they were from Knightsbridge, Holborn, Wolverhampton, Wales, and as far afield as Sweden as well. So as I said, I'm going to try to run through their stories at a pace. It may be rather quick, but I will, you can ask me questions at the end. So of course, I wanted to start first with Polly Nichols, who is the first victim of the canonical five, um, who was discovered on the morning, whose body was discovered on the morning of the 31st of August. And Polly's story begins um, almost exactly 42 years before her death, when she was born on the 26th of August uh, 1845. She was the daughter of Caroline and Edward Walker, who was a blacksmith, and she grew up around Fleet Street and the community of printers around there. Um, Polly grew up literate. She was at school until the age of 15, which was quite surprising at that time, which was quite unusual, and she had access to written material, probably on account of the fact that she lived in off of the, the, the banks of the Street of Ink, as Fleet Street was called then, and everybody had something to do with the printing trade. I suspect it was even likely that Edward Walker, who was a blacksmith, um, moved the family to that particular part of town because the printing industry, the printing trade, was heavily dependent on smithing at that time for typeface and things like that. So he would have found a, set, a steady stream of work uh, working for them. 
she left school at 15 when her mother, her mother and her brother died of tuberculosis at around the same time, and she took up the running of the household, as girls often did at this time. And as a result, her, she and her father fostered quite a close relationship throughout their lives. At the age of 18, she married her sweetheart, uh, William Nichols, who was a printer, and the couple lived with Edward Walker and her brother, um, for the first part of their married life, first in an address in Clerkenwell, which I recently found on 17 Kirby Street, uh, and then they moved south of the river back to where uh, Edward Walker's family came from, uh, around Walworth. Um, when, when, she, when the family lived on Kirby Street, Polly gave birth to her first child on the 17th of December, 1864, uh, William Edward Walker Nichols, but unfortunately the child died in his infancy. What the family really needed was a home of their own. Um, in 1876, uh, the, the Nichols family were now, uh, had now three children, um, and a fourth was, would soon be on the way. And they were able to secure a flat in this um, new um, concept for social housing, um, which was developed by George Peabody, who was an American philanthropist who wanted to give back to the city that he had lived in and done trade in for so long, and he wanted to give back to the poor, and so he started this whole scheme of uh, building uh, these, basically, they were like council estates, the first social housing. And um, they consisted of tenement blocks, and these were constructed around courtyards. I know this, this picture looks particularly dreary, um, but I think, you know, we're looking at completely mod cons for the 1870s here. So, I mean, everything from, um, you know, a meat safe, which was like an early refrigerator, to fireplaces in every room. Um, there was a bathhouse that people could use. All they needed was the key, a bathhouse on site. There was, there were, uh, there was a laundry on the roof where you could go and do your, your clothes and even a special drying area, which was open to the wind. Um, and that, was, that would have been just amazing for families who were living in tiny dwellings, you know, eight by ten feet, um, you know, with, with, with mouldering walls and, and vermin. And, and so this would have been a tremendous step up for the Nichols, and they would have known how lucky they were. The Peabody community, as you can imagine, was very tightly knit, and uh, the Nichols... Uh, became friends with their neighbors, and one of their neighbors was a woman named Sarah Vidler. Sarah Vidler was a, was a widow, and she lived there with her children, including one uh, daughter who had grown, who was 23, called Rosetta Walls. Now, Rosetta had separated from her husband, and I have recently found out, there's always been a mystery, what the story was. It turns out that Rosetta had married a ship's cook called Thomas Walls, or Walls, on the 4th uh, of uh, January, 1874. And, however, by the 2nd of February, he was aboard a steamer called the Russia. And um, if that was what their married lives were going to be like, it's no wonder that they drifted apart completely. And I think they probably realized they didn't have very much in common to begin with, as often was the case with, with marriages that people jumped into without really knowing who they were marrying at that time. 
Um, so Rosetta moved back in with her mother and uh, became friends with Polly and helped her, nursed her through the birth of her fifth child, Henry Alfred. Um, however, what seems to have happened was that uh, William Nichols um, had developed uh, a certain uh, affection for Rosetta and um, Polly got wind of this, and this was said to have caused a certain amount of friction in the family. Though uh, he argued that, in fact, um, it was Polly's drinking that was to blame, but in reality, this is unlikely to be the cause. And, and having studied the Peabody ledgers that I have and the Peabody rules, one of the things that they did was if somebody was a problem drinker, they were out straight away. So the idea that Polly was a problem drinker to such an extent that, um, that her husband you know, had no say over what she was doing and she was wrecking havoc is, is completely untrue. They probably had a number of very bad arguments um, and we may never actually know the real reasons why they split up. But it was during Easter of 1880 that Polly left home for good and she, unfortunately, had to go straight into the workhouse in order to claim maintenance from her husband. Now, this would have been quite a shock to somebody who may have never spent any time in the workhouse before. It, the problem was, in the Victorian era, there was no means by which the poor could actually divorce. If you were rich, you could afford a divorce. Of course, that was very scandalous as well. But the working classes could only separate. And one of the ways in which you, could, you had to prove to the parish that, um, that your marriage had actually broken down was to go into the workhouse and demonstrate that you were destitute. And then the parish had to then call upon the husband to cough up some maintenance money, which is exactly what happened in Polly's case. Um, and this money that she got, this maintenance, was contingent upon her maintaining a good character. Now, in the meantime, nothing like the hypocrisy of the 19th century, William and Rosetta were determined to be together. And um, it seems that earlier in, uh, early in 1882, perhaps towards the spring, because we know um, on the... 8th of February 1882, Thomas Walls officially emigrated to Australia. And knowing this, I suppose Rosetta thought, he's not coming back, we can be together. And William took this opportunity to try to get rid of Polly um, and in terms of his financial burden to her. So he sent a spy to go and see what she was up to. And the spy uncovered her living with another man. Now, it might very well have been the person who she turns up with on the 1881 census. And this is a man called George Crawshaw, who she's living with on 61 Wallington Road. And they are both of the right age. Um, the date of birth, the, the place of birth is almost spot on. And, um, and they were both married to other people. And so I suspect that is probably Polly. William found out that she was living with him or perhaps another man and cut off her maintenance um, and then left and set up house with Rosetta in 1883. And, and the year, next year, they were christening their first child and also christening Polly's youngest child as belonging to Rosetta and William. Um, so they were pretty keen to get rid of her out of their lives. 
After Polly's maintenance was cut, um, she was in and out of the workhouse, and she spends some time living with her father um, and her brother, but again, because Polly is now drinking, this leads to a lot of rows, and eventually um, she goes her own way. But by 1884, she has met a blacksmith, like her father, interestingly, a man called Thomas Drew, and she moved in with him. Unfortunately, this only lasted until 1886, we're uncertain why, but it's possible that Drew actually wanted to marry somebody because in that autumn, um, shortly after their relationship fell apart, he did marry somebody. Um, so Polly could never marry because she was only ever separated. So any relationship she then conducted was adultery. Um, and that's how the law viewed it, unfortunately. Polly turns up, Polly ends up in the in the workhouse and then decides she's gonna start tramping and sleeping rough because, you know, the workhouse was so unpleasant and a lot of people felt that their style was cramped or, you know, they got tired of it. They thought they could do better on their own and a lot of people ended up tramping and sleeping rough. Polly turns up, interestingly, in Trafalgar Square during the autumn of 1887, in the middle of uh, the period of the Trafalgar Square riots. And um, there was a growing encampment of the homeless and the poor, which began July, August that year. And this turned into demonstrations and later into riots. And Polly was there at this time, this point in history, which is very interesting. Um, there were over 600 people sleeping rough every night in Trafalgar Square. To give you an idea of the numbers of rough sleepers in London, that's just in Trafalgar Square. Polly was picked up by police for vagrancy and begging, and the magistrates basically sent her to the workhouse. And from this time until her death, she's fairly easy to trace because she's in and out of the workhouse and she's left quite a trail, bouncing between Holborn and Lambeth. She's also pulled out of service, I pulled out of the workhouse by Lambeth and put onto one of their schemes which placed older women in domestic service. And she's placed with the Cowdery family in Wandsworth in uh, April 1888. But unfortunately, that only lasts until the summer because um, Polly, probably missing alcohol, absconds with her clothing um, that she's been given by them, probably sells it and uh, takes to the streets. By then, she's, uh, by July of 1888, she has made her way to um, Whitechapel, especially with the proceeds of her stolen goods. She's able to get herself some lodgings, and she decides to stay at a lodging house called Wilmot's on 17 Thrall Street. And she's there most of the time, so she's there for about three weeks. Polly wasn't actually in Whitechapel for very long before she was murdered. Um, and uh, she's staying at Wilmot's and, and until she runs out of money and then she starts tramping again and she stayed for a short time apparently at the White House on Flower and Dean Street and also on Boundary Road. Ellen Holland, who is one of the um, witnesses at the inquest, said that Polly claimed that she didn't like mixed-sex lodging houses and that she wanted to return to Wilmot's. Um, she also, Ellen said that Polly was very melancholy and that she had fallen out with her family. And she made rather a, a very sad spectre when she toddled off in 
into the rain on the night of the 31st of August and unfortunately ended up on Bucks Row. Annie Chapman. Of all of the Ripper victims, Annie Chapman was, I think, the one who had the most promising of lives before her, which makes her situation even more sad. She was born Anne Eliza Smith in 1841. We don't know exactly when, but roughly sort of August, September time. The daughter of, she was the daughter of Ruth and George Smith, and George Smith was a soldier in the prestigious 2nd Regiment of the Lifeguards, and he was based uh, usually between Windsor and Knightsbridge most of the time, and so the family moved between those two postings um, when Annie was a child. One of the things I discovered, which is incredibly tragic, I mean, Annie's life had a lot of tragedy in it. Um, she turns out to be the eldest of nine children, only five of whom survived uh, their childhood. In the spring-summer of 1854, there was a joint scarlet fever and typhus epidemic which ripped through London. Again, it's one of these things that we don't see, you know, we, we know about the cholera epidemic, we know about these things, but we don't know about these little epidemics that ripped through neighbourhoods regularly. And this particularly impacted, for some reason, West London, uh, North London, and parts of Central London quite badly. Within three weeks, the Smiths had lost four children. George, aged 12, Eli, aged 5, Miriam, aged 2 and a half, and William at five months. That's, that was basically almost all of Annie's siblings were dead within three weeks. Absolutely horrendous. How the family coped with that is absolutely, you can't even imagine. I can't even imagine. Um, but not long after that, George who was getting older, left uh, service in, in the regiment. Um, he had been with them for 25 years to become a gentleman's valet. And this was a normal kind of step that a lot of men would make. They would be valeting for um, uh, officers in their regiment, and then eventually, when they retired, they could go work for somebody as, as a servant. So initially, he worked for, and this is all new information as well, which quite astonished me when I found this because we knew nothing about this. Um, initially, he worked for Roger William Henry Palmer in 1856, who was a hero of the Crimea, and he had partaken in, he was part of the Charge of the Light Brigade. And so there is a tenuous connection between the Ripper and the Charge of the Light Brigade, which I think is fantastic. Um, he was elected an MP, uh, and um, he, he travelled back and forth between barracks and his estate in Ireland, so it's likely that George travelled with him. And then George um, was taken on by a man called Captain Thomas Naylor Leyland, um, who later left the regiment and joined the Denbyshire Yeomanry, in 1862, and it was at that point that George decided he was going to leave, and he was going to leave with, with um, Thomas Naylor Leyland and serve him. And the first place he went was to Paris because um, Naylor Leyland got married there. And so it's just an interesting sort of thought that these people's lives were not as confined and constrained as we tend to think they were. However, it's terribly sad. Now, there is a letter that was written by Annie's sister, Miriam, about their family, and she said that her father suffered as, as with alcoholism and that he cut his own throat. I have found proof that this is true. 
and I found that George was indeed an alcoholic, and on the 13th of June, 1863, while at the Denbyshire Cavalry Races in Wrexham, that morning he was apparently very depressed and he cut his own throat as he was sitting in bed. And um, it was an enormous blow to the family. But it may have been one of the reasons why the family were able to afford the house that they then lived in, which is 29 Montpellier Place, because often uh, the employers of, of men or people who found themselves in tragic situations would give a, a charitable donation to a family. Um, Annie followed her father into service, and um, it turns out that her husband was also a servant, John Chapman. John Chapman was a very highly regarded gentleman's coachman. She married at 28, which was um, rather, oops, I have not been at flipping these forward, um, but there you can see their, their wonderful wedding portrait there. It's the only portrait of a ripper victim in life. Um, and it's, I think it's incredibly moving, actually, to see that. Um, she married at 28, which was quite late, but not if you were in domestic service. And they were married on the 1st of May, 1869, in Brompton, in Knightsbridge. And um, a year after their marriage, Annie gave birth to her first child, Emily. And then a second daughter, Georgina, arrived in 1873, followed by John Alfred in 1881, who was unfortunately born disabled. In fact, there's something very, very dark here. Annie, according to this letter written by her sister, gave birth eight times. I have found seven of these children, um, though only three of them, the three I mentioned, survived infancy and only two into adulthood. This was on account of Annie's drinking, which had become a real problem in her life. Notwithstanding this, John did very well as a coachman, and the family lived in Belgravia, in Mayfair, in Piccadilly, in Muse houses. They weren't wealthy, but they were comfortable, and they were lower middle class. John was hired by a man called Sir Francis Tresbury, um, who later, be, uh, well, the Sir was added slightly later, to become uh, the head coach, uh, head coachman, um, and uh, of his his considerable estate in um, just outside of Windsor in Clewer called St. Leonard's Hill. And you can see a picture of it there. He had this constructed, it was a gorgeous kind of French chateau style. Um, and Berry became very close friends with the royal family to the point that he was invited for dinner at Windsor Castle. And also um, he lent his house to the Prince of Wales during Ascot week in 1881 as well. However, in spite of all of this, Annie was suffering like her father, and, uh, and like her younger brother would as well, who also suffered from alcohol addiction. Her eldest daughter died of meningitis on the 30th of November, 1882, and Annie wasn't present at the death, and chances are she had gone off the rails. One of the reasons why I think this is because of um, some information I found about where Annie spent her time um, she, her family sent her to rehabilitation at a place called Spelthorne Sanatorium, which was one of the first rehabilitation centers for women in this country. And um, I found the logbook, which is amazing. Um, and it details when Annie arrived and that her sisters set up 
the whole situation for her and when her husband came to visit and when she was brought home. And um, Annie went there in the company of her sisters on the 9th of December, 1882, which is just after her daughter's death, and stayed until the 20th of December, 1883. Uh, and she seemed to do very well. But unfortunately, in 1884, she fell off the wagon. And Barry insisted that John did something with his wife. And, um, and otherwise, he was going to lose his job. So, we're, we're getting to Whitechapel now. Things, things go badly. Things, things start to spiral downwards. And sadly, in all five of these tales, they end in Whitechapel. Um, Annie, unfortunately, she was given an allowance of 10 shillings per week by her husband. And that would have done well for her had she not been an addict. And had she gone and she stayed with her mother or her teetotaling sisters... But unfortunately, Annie did what a lot of addicts do, and they chose the substance over their family. She took up with a wire sieve maker called Jack Sivy for a while, and that may have been the way in which she ended up in Whitechapel. We don't know. Um, but she also supplemented her income by doing crochet work and making anti-macassars, that wonderful Victorian thing that we no longer have. Um, and drink would be drink became the most important thing in her life because she had nothing else. Shortly before Christmas 1886 her weekly maintenance stopped and she walked to Windsor to find out why and it turned out her husband John was dying and now Annie was really in a pickle because it meant she didn't have that income anymore she also had started to develop what looks to be tuberculosis in order to make ends meet both men and women had to kind of partner up and a lot of people are very shocked a lot of middle class um, observers are very shocked by what they saw in in Whitechapel and amongst the poor that people would just decide to pick up together to live together um, man and women you know and 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 that might last you know a month a couple of weeks a couple of months and then that would fall apart and they find somebody else but it was pretty instant and it, it was that way because people needed each other to survive and Annie took up with in, in addition to Jack Sivy and Jack Sivy apparently left her after the money ran out she took up with a man called Harry the Hawker briefly and then a man called Ted Stanley who used to come and stay with her every weekend um, for about three nights and in that time she was able to afford um, her DOS at Crossingham's Lodging House on Dorset Street which you can see here which um, uh, he, he paid for but where she spent the rest of the time is ha has never been answered you know we know that she was there part of the time and my guess is I think she was almost certainly sleeping rough on the night of the 8th of September, she hadn't enough money for her DOS, and she went out into the night. And we know she ended up literally within the vicinity here, and she was killed in the yard off of 29 Hanbury Street, in a place, interestingly enough, where rough sleepers were known to sleep. So I think a lot of conclusions can be drawn from that. Next, we have Elizabeth Stride. A lot of people, and myself included, are very surprised to hear that um, uh, the Ripper's third victim actually was Swedish. 
and she was an immigrant. And what could be a more 19th century story than a story of, of immigration and a story of somebody who wanted to come here to start their life afresh? Elizabeth Stride was born Elizabeth Gustav's daughter in 1843 in the village of Stora I don't speak very good Swedish, uh, near Gothenburg. She was the second daughter of a farmer and his wife. And she grew up like other children within this farming community, um, between working on the family farm and attending her studies at the village schoolhouse. And she was a strict, she was brought up as a strict Lutheran. At 17, Elizabeth left home and uh, went to work as a servant in Gothenburg, uh, which was, was pretty much expected uh, for women of that time. And her sister had gone several years before. She got a job with, um, the, with a man called Lars Olsen and his family, um, and um, she was there until about eight, uh, early 1864, and she leaves, and we don't know why she leaves, probably to go and work for somebody else, because in the records it says, although she's left and she's moved further down the road in the parish, she's actually still working as a servant. We don't know who her employer was. But then by the autumn of 1864, things start to go a bit pear-shaped, because Elizabeth finds out she's pregnant. And whether this child was conceived as a result of consensual sex or otherwise, it's unknown, though it's probably likely that the father of the child was somebody within the household, whether her master, whether somebody her master knew, whether another servant in the household, because servants led such confined and restricted lives, and especially Swedish servants who were not even allowed out at night, that she would have had no opportunity to have met somebody else. And we know that the, the cycle is generally, when these things happen, it's usually because it happens within the household. Elizabeth was no longer able to disguise her condition, and she may have lost her job on account of that. Um, but she certainly come to the attention of the community in which she lives, and she's, expected, she's suspected of being something called a public woman. And she's guilty of what is described as, and this translates into English as, lecherous living. Now, this is really quite interesting because almost precisely at the time that Elizabeth found herself pregnant and out of a job, a law had been enacted in Gothenburg which made it necessary for all women suspected of being prostitutes to register their names on a police list, even if they were just suspected. And bear in mind that until the year before, adultery and illicit sex was considered illegal so this is, I mean, this is, this is moving things on. This is a positive thing because, you know, we're at a transitional time where what Elizabeth has done is so bad. It's so bad, and she would have felt the shame of that. Um, and, and the community would have been very tuned in to this. And so they created two lists, and one was of known prostitutes and one was of women who were suspected prostitutes. So a single woman who happened to be pregnant, nobody knew who the father was, well, she's just as bad as a prostitute. So um, unfortunately, her name had to go on the police register as, uh, as a possible offender. And that happened in March 1865. She was about five to six months pregnant. She appears in the records as uh, Common Woman 97. In the course of 
her first medical examination because you go on the police record and then you have to turn up twice a week for medical examinations at, um, at the police house, at, at the inspection house. Um, she was found to be showing the early symptoms of syphilis. And uh, while seven months pregnant, was admitted to the venereal health hospital called the Cahuzet and treated with hydroic acid, which is iodine and hydrogen. Whether it was on account of this or the fact that syphilis generally causes miscarriages, she miscarried at seven months. Um, she is then subsequently in and out of the Cahuzet as she goes back twice a week for her examinations, and every time the, you know, the symptoms of syphilis return. But the worst thing is she's also forced to practice as a prostitute at this point, because once you're on the police list, there's nothing else you can do. So she's actually spreading syphilis, although they don't realize that because they think they're curing her. So fortunately for Elizabeth, her life is able to be turned around because she meets a woman called Maria Wiesner, who is the wife of an oboist in the Gothenburg Orchestra, uh, who has agreed to take on Elizabeth as a servant, and uh, she, Elizabeth would work for her for free, and this is the way in which she could get off the police register and start her life anew. Um, and it's probable that it was through the Wiesners, who were musicians and had connections with um, the English church in Gothenburg, that Elizabeth was given an opportunity to come to this country and work as a servant for an English family. And from the records, we see that she actually chose to emigrate on that day. She chose to leave and not come back and she traveled on a vessel which was not an immigrant ship. She traveled on a private vessel, which probably indicates that she was going with a wealthy family. And that was in 1866. In London, Elizabeth um, embarked upon a new life and her employers lived, it seems, in Hyde Park. So this would be an entirely new experience for her. Um, it didn't, it, we don't know how long it lasted. It couldn't have lasted too long. But one of the interesting things is when the Swedes came here, they had to register with the Swedish church that they were here and they had to document their arrival here. And whenever they wanted to leave and go somewhere else, they had to put in notice. And it turns out, and this is a new document that has just been found, um, it turns out that Elizabeth registered, but then also said that she would be going to Brest in France. And Brest is one of the centers of the shipping trade. A lot of English families who lived in Gothenburg were with the shipping trade. So it would not be surprising if she was working for a shipping family at that point. Whether she went to Brest, we don't know, but she did come back. We also know that um, she then worked for a woman called Elizabeth Bond, who lived on Gower Street and ran a sort of upmarket boarding house for um, kind of middle-class people who, who didn't have the luxury of being able to afford their own accommodations at a house of their own. So um, she was living with, for example, a man who was a solicitor and a man who was a former brewer and his wife and daughter, and, um, and also another musician called Charles Louis Goffrey, who gave music lessons from Mrs. Bond's house as well. So Elizabeth was surrounded by music once more. It's likely that while she was living on Gower Street, she met her husband, um, John Stride, because he was a carpenter 
and the centre of the furniture trade was right around there on Tottenham Court Road. He was from a devout Methodist family, and his father was a property developer in Sheerness, so there was money, but his father was very, very Scrooge-like. They married on the 7th of March, 1869. Um, he was much older than her. He was 48, and she was 25, but she probably thought he was a safe bet. And together, they went off to open a coffee house in Poplar, which is where John's family lived. Um, and the first two years of this proved to be a bit of, the struggle, of a struggle, but they seemed to keep it going, nevertheless. Um, the Strides never had any children, probably due to the fact that Elizabeth uh, was, um, had, still had syphilis, um, though it was, it, at this stage it becomes latent, so it's no longer contagious. Um, the, the, their, their, their foray into the world of running a coffee house didn't necessarily go that well, and John had to supplement with bits of carpentry work to make ends meet. Um, he may have been holding out for an inheritance, interestingly, because his father died in September 1873, and um, the only people he left stuff to in his will were the children who lived with him in Sheerness. All of John's other brothers, um, the ones who lived in London, were disinherited, it seems. Um, and um, not surprisingly, uh, John, they had to close the business Fell into, uh, fell into disrepair, and they had to close the doors shortly thereafter. Um, and um, though we don't know, there might be some other factors that, that led to this as well. Um, John continued work as a carpenter, but things again started not to go especially well, and the family, um, they both ended up in the workhouse. Um, John died there. He was, uh, when he, was, he was very ill and broken in 1884, and unfortunately, that left Elizabeth to look after herself. The couple had split prior to going into the workhouse as well. She was consoling herself more and more with drink and um, couldn't ref uh, return to her former occupation as a servant, but took on charring work. Um, and you can see here two pictures of charwomen. Charwomen were considered some of the lowliest forms of, of, of domestic... Char, charring was considered some of the lowliest form of domestic service one could enter into. Um, it was just day cleaning. And she found, when she was in dire need, that she returned to prostitution. And in November 1884, she appears um, uh, in the Thames Magistrates Court uh, for um, drunk disorderliness and soliciting. Um, shortly after this, she takes up with a man called Michael Kidney, who was nine years her junior. And unfortunately, Kidney was very violent, and she tries to leave him, and she ends up going back to him, and she gets stuck in a cycle of violence. Um, and she and Kidney take furnished rooms together. And um, on one occasion, she does try to leave him, and she's drawn back in. And when she goes and leaves him, she stays at a lodging house, which is 32 Flower and Dean Street. And that's kind of her safe space where she can go to. And she was there uh, just before her death. And there are so many conflicting reports as to what Elizabeth was doing at the end of her life that I have to say, I am 
coming round to the theory posited by some people that she may not have even been a victim of the Ripper, but a victim of somebody else, um, because she doesn't seem to fit the, the same mold as everybody else, um, and that what would have been the killer's modus operandi. Um, and um, it's very hard to actually figure out what exactly, who saw her and what she was doing and where she was. So I think, for me at least, the end of her life on the 30th of September is kind of still enshrouded in mystery. Moving on to Catherine Eddowes. The story of the Whitechapel murders is kind of fixed in the public imagination as being very much a London story, but as we've seen, that's not the case at all. And in fact, Catherine's story starts in Wolverhampton. Um, Catherine, or Kate Eddowes, was born on the 14th of April, 1842, in the center of the Industrial Revolution. And her father, George, and was, a, was a tin plate worker, and her mother was a cook at the Peacock Hotel, which was a busy coaching inn. Her father, George, and uh, her uncle, William, were active in the Tin Men Society. They were union men, and they were strident union men. And George was a union agitator who was responsible for a major strike in January 1843 of tin workers. His employer, Edward Perry, called him a firebrand. He was taken to court for uh, striking and encouraging others to strike, and he was sent to Stafford Prison for two months to walk the treadwheel, which was pretty terrible. Naturally, after that, the family could not stay in Wolverhampton, and the union would have found them uh, another place to live in London. The union at the time was shipping men down to London who were in trouble in Wolverhampton. And um, George managed to get a job at Perkins and Sharpest off of Cannon Street, while the family lived in Bermondsey. And this is where Kate Eddowes grew up. The Eddowses eventually were to have 12 children, um, 10 of whom lived to adult adulthood. There were seven sisters uh, who survived, and Kate's eldest three sisters were placed into domestic service. So as there were children being born into her family, there were other ones being shipped out of the house because there just wasn't room for everyone. Kate, however, was incredibly fortunate because she was placed in the Dowgate School, which is a charity school located directly around the corner from Perkins and Sharpest. Perkins and Sharpest. Dowgate places were made available for children of Perkins and Sharpest's Perkins and Sharpers's workforce. Um, and so Kate, uh, they really took advantage of that. And one, one thing that we know, while she was there, she learned reading and writing and also singing, which comes up very useful in later life. And we also know that the children were taken one day to see the Crystal Palace. So you can imagine little Kate in her uniform going to see the Crystal Palace and all the splendors of that. By, unfortunately, by uh, December 1854, this story always goes, unfortunately, unfortunately, it's, it is, it's, it's, it's a catalogue of, of trial and error and failure and little successes. By September, by, sorry, by December 1857, the Edo's children had lost both of their parents to tuberculosis, 
and it fell to the elder sisters to decide the fates of the siblings. And the families were split up. The youngest children were sent to the workhouse and the industrial schools, where they actually got um, some training in education, interestingly. Um, but Kate was sent off to her family in Wolverhampton, uh, where she was able to take up a job that her uncle and aunt arranged for her at the Old Hall Works, which is where the family had worked for generations. Um, and she worked as what was called a uh, tin scourer. And this is a tin plate scourer. is somebody who works over an acid bath, scouring tin plates, you know, all day long, um, regardless of burning eyes and sore throats. And you can just imagine the, the scope for industrial accidents. They're pretty nasty. Um, she didn't find that very much to her liking, as you can imagine. Um, it was said that she actually stole from her employer and then got herself, fell out so badly with her relations that she went to live with her uncle Tom, who was uh, a shoemaker um, and also a boxer. And I actually found that Uncle Tom, uh, Uncle Tom the Snob, he's called. The sn Snob was a colloquial term for a, for a shoemaker, and was still boxing in 1866 in Birmingham, which is interesting. And I think Kate must have been really impressed by, by him and what he did. Um, Unfortunately, Kate finds herself again working in a tin plate factory in Birmingham. Again, not to her liking. But fortunately for her, a rather dashing young man comes into her life um, called um, Thomas Conway. And he had been a private in the 1st Battalion, Battalion, oh God, I'm losing it, of the, of, <laughs> of the 18th Royal Regiment. And he had spent three years serving in Madras and Bombay before receiving an honorable discharge for poor health. He was part of the Sepoy Mutiny. It's unknown how they met, but legend goes that they were taken with each other, and she was particularly taken with him because he was a ballad singer. He was a traveling bard who wrote and sang his own ballads. It's likely, interestingly, that Kate was the one writing the ballads because, as I found out from looking at Thomas Conway's papers, he was illiterate and Kate was not illiterate. So if anybody is writing the ballads, it's going to be Kate at this stage. Um, her family didn't like him. He was a drifter. He was a, you know, he was not the sort of man who was going to do right by Kate. And they eventually made him choose between, uh, made her choose between him or living with them. And she chose him and a life on the road selling and performing ballads. This was, we can see a picture of it here, and this is kind of what happens. It was a whole performance that went on in marketplaces and actually at hangings as well. And the two traveled the country doing this, telling stories and singing their stories. And it turns out in um, 1866, Kate's own cousin, Charles Christopher Robinson, found himself, was found guilty of cutting his fiance's throat. There's a lot of throat cutting in these stories. Um, and he was hanged at Stafford Jail. And it has been suggested that this ballad we see was possibly written by Kate and Conway. It's certainly very, very sympathetic to the murderer, which would not be surprising given that Kate may have written it. Um, the ballad was said to have been an unrivaled success, and Conway decided to try his luck in London. 
and the two settled in London in, in Westminster in a clean and comfortable worker's cottage, as it is quoted from uh, her sister. Um, they by then had a three-year-old daughter and then a newborn son, Thomas. Kate was pregnant a total of six times, perhaps more. Um, only three children survived to adulthood. Two, a daughter and a son died in infancy, and the last child may not have even been a live birth. Um, Kate, this may have been Kate's first return to London and a reunion with her sisters, um, which could have been, I think she had a very difficult and strained relationship with her sisters because they were very censorious of her and perhaps not without uh, reason because um, Kate didn't do things by the book and she got herself into trouble and later ended up falling out with her family. Um, what they made of her, she turned up with a tattoo of Thomas Conway's initials on her arm and no wedding ring. Um, must have been pretty uh, shocking even for them, for women of, of the uh, working classes who were accustomed to people um, living uh, outside of wedlock. Still, to have a tattoo would have been pretty, pretty risque at that time. Um, unfortunately, Thomas Conway's foray into the world of London ballad writing and selling didn't go so well, and he had to go uh, looking for uh, work up north and in London, and he left his family alone quite a lot, and many occasions he left Kate um, to go into the workhouse, and things really fell apart with the family, and we know that Conway became very, very violent, and they had some really bad um, uh, run-ins together. Um, Kate would turn up at her sister's house uh, with eyes black and blue um, and, and crying, and her life becomes, it sounds like, a cautionary tale of what you shouldn't do. Conway was said to have beaten her because she drank a lot, um, and uh, he was a teetotaler. Uh, however, everybody within the family seems to have a different way of telling this story, not surprisingly. By 1881, Conway claimed drinking was so bad that he took the kids and um, he took the two youngest kids and separated from her. And this stopped the cycle of domestic violence. Um, but Kate met another man called Michael Kelly, who she took up with at a lodging house at 55 Flower and Dean Street. Kelly was harmless by comparison with Conway, um, but the Edo sisters didn't like him because he was a drunkard, a casual laborer, and a tramp, um, as was she. And she accustomed herself to this life, and she had accustomed herself to tramping and probably preferred it, actually, to being anywhere in particular. In late September 1888, Kate and Kelly had just returned from an unsuccessful attempt at hot-picking in Kent. And the final days of her life present a kind of snapshot of what her days must have actually been like, living hand-to-mouth, pawning boots to eat, staying in a casual ward, sleeping rough, picking up odd laboring jobs, spending the money, trying to figure out where you're going to get the money, over and over and over again. Um, she was said to have gone to try to get money from her daughter, who she hadn't seen for nearly two years, on the 29th of September. Um, but she didn't. She managed to get some alcohol from somebody and uh, got drunk and basically was picked up by the police taken in to sober up and um, around one o'clock in the morning discharged and disappeared into the night, went down to Houndsditch in that direction where she had last parted with 
with Kelly and wandered into Mitre Square, which was the last place that she, well, was a place where she was found dead. Mary Jane Kelly. Among the can canonical five, Mary Jane Kelly is the one of which we know the least. And um, she is also the only one who I think we can rightly call a career prostitute. And like most career prostitutes, she used a number of different aliases uh, during her life. And the name Kelly was almost certainly not hers from birth. She claimed to have come from Irish parents and was raised in Wales, and she claimed to have married a miner called Davies when she was 16, who died in a mining accident shortly thereafter. But she never spoke with an accent, either Welsh or Irish. She's described as coming from a well-to-do family, but um, uh, she's described as coming from a well-to-do family and conducting herself with refined manners. She was very attractive. She's described as being full-figured and with long, strawberry blonde hair, though this changes. Some people say she was dark. One has to wonder, actually, if we're even talking about the same people. Sometimes when people in, in the inquest documents describe people or whether they're being interviewed about people, it, it, it doesn't seem to even add up that it's the same person. So who knows with Mary Jane Kelly, an enigma on top of an enigma. She was literate, and she was even said to be an artist of no mean degree. All we know about Mary Jane Kelly came from her partner, Joseph Barnett, and most of what we know is secondhand, um, and it's changed perhaps to suit uh, whoever she was pretending to be at that time. Um, and um, most attempts, and, and researchers have been trying to find out about Mary Jane Kelly for probably 130 years, and no one has found anything. And that, to me, says something pretty obvious, that her name was never Mary Jane Kelly. And I think we can draw a line under that. It's likely that Mary Jane Kelly, my feeling is, uh, came from a more well-to-do, comfortable family, and she may have run off with somebody and ended up sullying her reputation. Mary Jane was an upmarket prostitute, and entry into this level wasn't just about turning up and deciding I'm going to enter an upmarket, you know, into upmarket prostitution at all. Um, you would have, like anything in life at that time, you would have had to have been introduced into it either by a former lover or you would have had to have been groomed for that particular, um, particular circle. So this idea that somehow she just turns up and moves into that level of prostitution is, is wrong. She lived in Knightsbridge and she worked in the West End. In, um, in 1885, the Criminal Law Amendment Act was passed, which meant that prostitutes had to basically take it all underground. Um, the brothels were shut, um, street walking was really cracked down on a lot, and you couldn't solicit where you lived. So a lot of women would, you know, the well-to-do women would live in places like St. John's Wood and Knightsbridge, and then they would come into the West End and they would solicit there and then go back with the gentlemen to their place or maybe to a hotel as well. Um, trafficking was an issue at this time as well. We tend to think of this as being a modern problem. Um, trafficking women into foreign brothels was Something that appears in the press quite a lot, W.T. Stead writes about it in the Pall Mall Gazette. Um, and in 1884, he's writing that at least 20 girls a month are sent to Paris alone um, and uh, from London. 
a third of which were already practicing prostitutes in London. Um, and at some point in 1885, I strongly believe that Mary Jane Kelly was among them. By her own admission, Mary Jane, or Marie Jeannette, as she called herself, um, claimed to have been taken to Paris by a gentleman, but, where she, but when she saw where she was going to be placed, she fled. And one of the interesting keys, one of the interesting clues in this, it gives me a sense of this, is that she left a trunk of dresses behind. She left her expensive clothes behind with her French landlady, landlady slash procuress. Now, one of the ruses when they get you into a maison close in France, um, one of the ways in which they entrap you is to ensure you have none of your own belongings there and you have to wear the clothes they give you and then you have to pay for those clothes. And that is the first way in which a woman is entrapped. And if this was truly a ring, then it may have started with her landlady, who would have probably introduced her to the gentleman. And the gentleman would have taken her to Paris and put her into a maison close. And when, when women figured out where they were, a lot of them, it was very hard for them to get out. But if they had some knowledge of, of French or, and could communicate, they could be released because they could speak to the authorities. And that's what I believe happened. I believe she evaded capture by coming back and not going back to the, the West End, which would have been a mistake because everybody would have been able to find her, but actually hiding out in the Ratcliffe Highway in that area. St. Catherine's docks in the summer months had passenger ships coming in from France. And where she ended up staying, which was 79 Pennington Street, is just a short walk from St. Catherine's docks. So it makes sense that she would have come in via that way. She stayed with a woman called Mrs. Boku um, and, and her husband, who was called Johannes Morgenstern. And these, this, the, the Boku Morgensterns appear to have been a kind of um, brothel slash um, crime family or prostitution crime family. Um, and uh, because it seems that Morgenstern's brother, Adrianus, was living with a woman called Mrs. Felix in another house that was a brothel or associated with prostitution. Um, Mary Jane stayed with them for a while. She drank a lot. She fell out with them, and then she moved next door to Mrs. Carthy's house on number one Breezes Hill, and that establishment was, was just like the one she had left, and um, eventually, it, it looks like she's pretty desperate to get out of the trade. And there's a young man called Joseph Fleming who comes around and says he's in love with her, wants to take her away. And, and she lives with him for a while on the old Bethnal Green Road. Um, and um, unfortunately, that doesn't last very long. And she's out soliciting. But she doesn't go back to the Radcliffe Highway. She comes to Whitechapel. On Good Friday in 1887, Mary Jane met Joe Barnett, who was a Billingsgate fish market porter. Uh, and uh, he was, he said, immediately taken with her. Now, bear in mind, the whole story is told from Joseph Barnett's point of view. After a few meetings, they agreed to live together. And they were together for quite a long time. Um, though it seems as though Joe wasn't making very much money. At one point, he lost his job. The couple were really never able to make their rent. And at some point, they moved around to a number of addresses. And at some point, they end up at 13 Miller's Court. Um, it was at this point when Joe loses his job. 
at Billingsgate Market. And uh, Mary Jane's rather annoyed and saying she needs to go back to soliciting in order to keep a roof over their heads. They fall out over this. He leaves her. And unfortunately, this is right during the height of the Ripper's reign. And, um, and the last time he saw her was the day before she was murdered. And it turns out that she was killed in her bed in the early hours of the morning of the 9th of November in this very place that she, she shared with um, Joseph Barnett. Um, as I said, her story is told entirely from his perspective, so we may never really know who Mary Jane Kelly was. And I think at some point, unless something really comes to light, we have to be just satisfied with that. After the deaths of these women, uh, there were inquests into their murders. And you will all be pleased to know that the women were all given dignified burials. Um, but still, many of them who are related to them, even today, tried to wipe them from their family histories. There was a lot of shame connected to this. Many of the descendants today don't even know that they have been related to the Ripper's victims, which I think is very sad because it means the shame seems to have lingered. But what happened to these women wasn't their fault. However, that they've been forgotten is our fault, and we need to integrate the details of their stories back into the narrative of Jack the Ripper. They need to be as important as the killer, if not more because we know so much about them and we need to give them back their dignity and, and their humanity, which he stole from them. So thank you very much. I, I will, I, I, I've been told we have to be out of here by six. So I can take a couple of questions. Oh, Louise. <laughs> yes. Annie Besant, um, Eleanor Marks, um, uh, yes, all, they're, they're all there. William Morris. She turns up in a newspaper report because she's picked up by the police for vagrancy and begging, and she was involved in a begging scheme, which, a begging scam, where they, you know where the, the, the balcony is, you know where the National Gallery is? Apparently what they used to do is they'd drop their shawls and they'd shiver, and they'd look up at the people and they'd throw the coins down at them. <laughs> oh, good. You're welcome. Yes. Yes. Well, she, it, it may have been because at the time Polly was living in a household. It was, it was her, her elder brother and her father were two wage earners. 
and Polly obviously would have been looking after the house, but there was nobody else. Her mother was, was gone, but she appears on the census as a scholar. It's not totally surprising because geographically, it was in the center of printing and literacy in London. And, and I, I, my gut sense is that her father was probably a type founder or somebody. He was a, a blacksmith, or I think he may have been involved in making printing presses. I don't know. It was, she appears in the census, that's all I can say, is that, that, is that. So, yes. Yeah, and I do think that will have something to do with the profession in which he lived, the area in which he lived. Where they lived, there was, um, I think there was a British national school right on the corner. Um, and also, I don't know if you're aware, but a number of printers, a number of publishing houses had um, uh, like schools for people who worked for them um, that, that were available. They had libraries, they had, I mean, it may have been on account of that. We don't, I don't know, but... I, it struck me as odd too, especially with, the, with all of the others I've looked at seem to have left at a younger age too. Yes? I, I, I looked, I surveyed what people had done before and one of the things, that, well, the conclusion I came to was that we... Absolutely, her name was not Kelly. She was not born Mary Jane Kelly because we would have found something by now. And, and still, you know, people are combing through it. You're, they're never going to find it, I don't think. Um, my, sense is, my sense is that she made up this story about herself, but I think she took the name Kelly when she came back here after being trafficked. Well, what is a way you can just blend into the East End, take a very ubiquitous Irish surname? That everyone has, and especially if they're looking for a Welsh woman. So I've often thought about the, the, um, the mining disaster. Yeah. People have looked, do you know, there's something else in this which I think is interesting, which is, if you look at the way Joe Barnett describes, okay, everything's secondhand from Joe Barnett, and Joe Barnett's realm of understanding of what was going on is very limited as well. So, Joe Barnett describes her father as a gaffer. A gaffer could be a foreman or could be somebody in charge. Now, I think Mary Jane Kelly was middle class, and I think she, was, she went off the rails. She may have run away with somebody, um, and their family, what she talks about, she was in, a, in uh, an infirmary for nine months. Nobody goes in at public expense to a public infirmary for nine months, but they do go into asylums at private expense. And if you line up all of these things, it's... If you line up all of these things, it makes sense. Also, the descriptions of her. You cannot fake your education if you have been well-educated. A woman who can draw, she was an artist of no mean degree, you would have had no access to that 
as a working class girl drawing lessons. Absolutely no way. And I think that's a giveaway as well. Um, and, and so there are these little things that line up. But again, we don't know. I mean, Joe Barnett, this is secondhand information. So we may never know. It will be an enigma, I think. And I, I know you want to say something. Yes, absolutely, yeah, yeah. You're never going to find it. Yeah. Well, it isn't. I, I didn't use all Joseph Barnett. I used other. I used other things to 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 deduce, deduce that as well. I mean, the thing, the fact of the matter is, you cannot fake when the markers of an education are going to be on you. If you had an upper a, a, a middle class education. You, you will be, that's not something you would have had access to if you were the daughter of a poor miner of nine children. Yeah. But, but the miners did educate Yes, of course they did. It was almost like a princess in London. Yeah. And the thing is, if you look at Carly's workouts, there was, um, there's only, there's a staff. The story is she either was stayed there or she was employed there. And there's actually staff living. But this is, the, the, the other thing is, yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just want to point something out. Newspaper, one of the things that I found in the research is that newspaper articles conflict. They all conflict. And a lot of times it's misprinting, it's embellishment. So we don't know what the real story is. And that's the problem. And so, you know, a gauger or a gaffer may be a misinterpretation of gaffer by somebody or misinterpretation of gauger by somebody. We don't know and we never will know. That's the point. He wouldn't know. He wouldn't know. It's beyond his realm. He didn't understand. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we are indeed out of time, which is a, a great shame, because Halley's presentation, I'm sure you'll agree, has been absolutely fascinating, well-researched, some, some excellent images in there also, of some things that are, 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 are maybe not 
rare, but a lot of us hadn't actually seen before. And, and thoroughly engaged, and obviously wish you the best of luck with your forthcoming publication. Ladies and gentlemen, Hallie Rubenhardt. Thank you very much. And that was Hallie Rubenhold at the Whitechapel Society 1888's Victims Conference. We would like to thank Hallie Rubenhold, Steve Ratty, Frog Moody, Ruby Vitorino, and the Committee of the Whitechapel Society for making the release of this talk possible. For more information on the Whitechapel Society, please visit their website, whitechapelsociety.com, where you'll find out how to become a member, get information about their future meetings, purchase books and subscribe to their Whitechapel Society journal. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by casebook.org, where you'll find over 100 roundtable discussions, author interviews and conference presentations all about Jack the Ripper and Victorian crime. And if you have any comments or questions about our podcasts, feel free to find us on the Casebook message boards or on Twitter and Facebook by searching for RipperCast. <laughs>